somewhere between waking and sleeping. On our journey towards the unfathomable deep, there comes a thin moment where we have one foot in the waking world and the other is in that other world where we relinquish conscious control. Pausing here and straddled between two planets that drive one another like gears, the attentive traveller will notice a narrow door only wide enough to sidle through. This is the border of sleep, where imagination and reality are braided together, a chasm in the crust of consciousness venting the hot pumice of imagery into the irresistible magma of narrative. Welcome to episode 27 of Stories from the Borders of Sleep, a weekly podcast of curious tales from bordersofsleep.com, featuring original stories by your host, Seymour Jacklin. Visit bordersofsleep.com for more information or to leave some feedback. Artwork is by Robin Trainer and production is by Tim Wiles. The soundtrack for this week's episode is from the album Unspoken by Jamie Sieber and Atmosphere by George Costatini. It's available from magnitune.com. The podcast is also available on iTunes. So, if you're ready to journey with me, then I shall begin. Iron and Wood by Seymour Jacklin Mabel had a favourite place to sit, at the top of the garden, an old bench underneath the reaching boughs of a walnut tree that in the summer months was dressed with the delicate pastel blossoms of a briar rose. From here she could see over the garden hedge into the valley below and to the mountains beyond. She would put her hands in her lap and sigh, and on many occasions she would talk to them as if they were not part of her. "'You've been good to me,' she would say to them, for throughout the last forty years of her life their industry had fed her and her boys and made maybe a hundred acres of lace. They reminded her of her own father's hands. They too had been gracile, smooth and agile, a lace-maker's hands. On this day she went to her garden seat as soon as she could after rising, because she had woken up with a strange feeling that something was not right. Something had tipped the scales of her serenity. She could not tell just what it was, yet, but that is why she had come here. At first her thoughts turned to her eldest son. Two years ago he had left home to find work on one of the coasters that plied between the mainland and the scattered handful of islands a few miles offshore. Since then, on the few occasions that he'd come back to see her, he'd always come back with another tale of the bitterness of life that seemed to pierce him again and again. The death of one friend, the betrayal of another, rumours of war, the knee injury. Perhaps she'd sheltered him too much, she thought, and failed to prepare him for the many injustices that overtake even the best people. His brother had left a year later. He was an altogether more resilient man who went inland to work on the timber plantations. She'd not seen him at all since then, but he wrote her the most beautiful letters. He had her father's hands too, though they would now be roughened like bark. He would work scraps of wood from the mill into little carvings of the animals that he had seen and send them with a letter and a tale of how he had not seen this deer until he'd almost fallen over it 
or how that bird had spent the whole morning following him about. For a long time, it had just been the three of them. Three cups, three plates, three chairs around the table and three pensive faces in the firelight of a winter's evening. None of them ever spoke of the fourth, whose absence each of them carried in a different way. For William, the youngest, his father was the man with the sea in his eyes, whose strong body was hewed like a mast from a single tree and towering like the pines among which he now made his home. For Jack, who'd followed his father down to the ocean, he was like a priest, who was permitted to handle sacred items of steel that Jack was never allowed to touch until he came of age. He still carried his father's lock spike, for prying apart stubborn knots at sea. But for Mabel, it was the sparrowhawk who haunted the sky above these hills, pivoting on the rising air with its sad cry and proud face that reminded her most of her dear husband and his untamable spirit. The sea takes men in the cruelest way. One moment they are standing on the deck, and the next they are gone, and one grey wave after another erases their last cries from the air. It leaves no body to mourn, but perhaps a lock spike swinging by a lanyard from a spar. From where she sat, Mabel could also look down the path that led to their house. The path relied on the footfalls of frequent visitors to keep it open, and the grass was closing over it since it had been several weeks since anyone had come or gone along it. In places, the briars and bushes were growing to meet each other overhead. A flock of starlings suddenly burst from a hawthorn down the path with a chatter of wings and cast about in an agitated way as if it had just burst into flame. Somebody was coming down the path. She instantly recognised William's gait. He'd always walked with a looseness in his stride and there was something of the marionette about the way his knees bent and his arms swung. She tripped down to the gate to meet him and was standing there as he came up. They reached for each other, without words, and she felt the rasp of his beard on her neck as they held each other for several moments in which all the strange sense of disorder in her melted away. Mother, he said, pulling back, yet keeping hold of one of her hands. You're looking well. He was looking well too. His face had filled out and his red hair had thickened and curled like the flames of a roaring fire. The sorry stoop of his shoulders had squared out as if he'd let go of a long-carried burden. Come inside, my boy, and I'll put the kettle on, she said. In spite of her repeated invitation that he sit, William stood in the kitchen, moving occasionally to keep out of her way. She could tell there was something he wanted to say to her, and while he waited for her full attention, she told him how lovely his letters were and shared the latest news of his brother's woes. When at last they both sat with a teapot between them, he was ready to burst. I think I have good news, he said earnestly, and she looked back at him uncertainly, for her first thought was that this good news might mean that he was going to move even further away on some new exploit. She let her hands rest quietly on the table just a few inches from his, as he told his story. Just a few days ago, I had to go deeper into the forest than I've ever gone before, he began. 
I needed to open up a track to bring some wood back from a new area that we wanted to open up for logging, and I had to spend two nights in the forest because it was too far from the mills. On the second morning, as I was packing away my tent, I smelt wood smoke. A gentle, homely drift of it, not like the soot of a forest fire. It was strange because, to my knowledge, nobody lived or even hunted in those parts, so I tried to find out where it was coming from. I came to a very old place where the trees were so thick that they grappled with each other over my head, and it seemed as if they'd been locked together like this for several generations. It was so quiet that I could find my way by the crackle of the fire from which the smoke must have been coming. There were large boulders underfoot too, scattered around as if some giants had been playing dice with them. I found it though, a small fire, burning in a pyramid of twigs, and sitting behind it on a rock, an old woman, and over above it the boughs of the oldest oak I have ever seen, barely able to support the weight of its own branches that spread to all points of the compass as if it was the mother of all trees. This old woman seemed to be expecting me, for she shuffled to meet me, no taller standing up than when she'd been sitting, and she gave me a steaming cup of bitter acorn coffee to drink. I thanked her and asked what she was doing, but she said she had more right to know what I was doing because she'd been there first. When I explained that we were going to open up the area to cut wood, she just shook her head. Then she looked straight into my eyes and said, I'm glad that it's you who has come and not another, because I see that you have known great loss in your life. And so you will know how much grief it will give me if you bring steel into this place and cut the heart out of this forest. Mother, her words went home like a hunter's dart, and I just started crying. You know, we never really mourned, and William's voice tailed off for the weight of silence around his father's absence still overshadowed the table at which they were sitting. He continued, I was vaguely aware that she had come over to me and put an arm around my waist to comfort me, for the old woman could not reach any higher. I could go back and tell them that the conditions are too difficult for us to get the logs out, I sobbed. They will take my word for it. She got me to sit down and drink the coffee as my tears subsided. I tried to wipe my eyes dry, but they filled with stinging sweat from my hands so I couldn't see properly. I found one of your lace handkerchiefs in my pocket and wiped them with that as she started to speak to me again. Good lad, she said. Then she took one of my hands like this. William grasped his mother's hand again and looked at her intensely. The old lady said to me, if you do so, I will repay you well in kind. Save me from this loss, and I will save you from yours. You cannot bring back the dead, I told her. But I reassured her that I'd keep my promise and stood up to leave. I cannot, but you can, she said. If you can tell me where that handkerchief comes from, I can tell you how you can bring him back. She knew about father, I think. She knew about a lot of things just from looking at me. It was uncanny, but it led me to trust her, and I think that we must do what she said. There was silence again in the kitchen, and the commotion of starlings through the open door suddenly announced the approach of another man down the path. It's Jack! exclaimed Mabel. 
knowing in the knowingness of her knowing that her other son was walking towards the house. Moments later, Jack's frame shadowed the doorway and he was stomping his boots dry on the threshold. His great coat gave him an angular silhouette, more monstrous than human, and the great coil of rope over his right shoulder only added to the effect. He stooped inside, and Mabel ran into his arms. He was a head taller than William, and he held his mother against him like a shepherd with a lamb, while greeting his brother with his eyes. He slung the coil of rope down by the hearth. They all embraced, and the third cup came out of the cupboard for Jack. I have some shore leave, he announced. I hope you don't mind, but I've brought some work with me. William and Mabel exchanged a glance, sensing that something else must have been at work to bring Jack home at this particular instant. But Jack continued cheerily unaware, briefing them on a few bits of news from the port and saying how lovely it was that they were all together again. For once, he had no recent misery to relate. When he'd run out of small talk, Jack noticed his family looking at him oddly. What? he asked. In brief form, William told him about the old woman in the wood up to the point where he'd interrupted them. Jack slouched back in his chair and rubbed his forehead with his finger as was his habit when he was trying to think. What did she tell you to do? he asked. This is what we must do, said William. I must make fifty new lace bobbins for mother from the old oak and we must pick apart a shackle of old rope into fine threads, and Mother must weave it into a shroud of lace using the bobbins. Then we must lay it upon the roof of the house in the evening before the dew falls and go inside and close every door and shutter and not go out for anything until daybreak. Well, I have the rope right here, said Jack but the captain has ordered me to make up twelve monkey's fists to use as fenders. I'm not sure that he wants lace, he smirked. But I don't see why we shouldn't try for mother's sake, he added. So they went to work, each of them in their own way. Jack pulled a chair over to the hearth and hunched over the rope in his lap, picking away at it with his father's spike and dropping the threads beside him like the coils of a maiden's hair. William took himself out to his mother's bench and began to whittle at a splintery piece of the old oak that he'd brought with him, and Mabel bustled to see them fed and watered between the hours at her lace cushion in the window where the light was best, adding bobbins and threads as her sons brought them to her. When all the daylight had gone, they came back to the table. Each of them were too tired to speak, but the light of their shared endeavour danced in their eyes. The work had so absorbed them that they had all but forgotten the ultimate purpose of the project. In the same way, the next day they worked hard, and when he'd finished carving the bobbins, William took over seeing to the needs of the other two. The hawthorns down the path were quivering with small birds, and snowdrops unfurled themselves, heralding the spring. As the sun passed across the sky, it met with few clouds, and the yellow faces of the dandelions followed it from east to west, and then tucked their heads back into their collars at nightfall. So another day passed while Mabel's fingers pecked rhythmically at the lace, and Jack flexed his aching fingers, taking increasingly frequent breaks from his work, which was almost done. Mabel had no hesitation about the design for the lace emerging from under her fingers. It was perfect, 
and years of experience had taught her to see the whole even as she worked upon the parts. For two more days her fingers flew, and as the last few threads were wound on the bobbins she finally felt tired. The last few hours were long, and her two boys sat quietly in the room, hardly seeming to breathe. At last, on the fourth evening, it was done, and she took a corner in each hand from the foam that spilled out from her cushion, flicked the shroud out like a sail catching the breeze, and laid it over the table. It covered the table and fell to cover the floor on all four sides. It was more grey than white, and mottled with various shades that seemed to come together with the design and bring it to life. Jack and William gasped. At the very centre of the shroud, she had woven a sparrowhawk with its wings at full stretch, and the edges of its feathers turned up in the strong current of its ascent. Both of them recognised their father's eyes lovingly depicted in the sparrowhawk's face, and they seemed to frighten off the shadow of his absence from the room. It was as if he was there with them. Getting the shroud spread on the roof was an awkward practicality that Jack and William saw to, accustomed as they were to working at heights. It was a very still evening, and on such an evening it was possible to hear the soughing of the sea from the house, or perhaps they imagined it. Because the light still died early and quickly at this time of year, and the stars above became momentarily obscured by the gathering dew waiting to lay itself upon the ground, they finished and hurried inside, closing every door and shutter as instructed. None of them felt like eating, so they picked at some leftovers. None of them felt like sleeping, so they sat up at the table with the cold food between them. None of them felt like talking, so they listened to the chatter of the fire in the hearth and took turns to feed it, until there was no wood left, and since they couldn't go out to get any more, their eyelids collapsed closed with the last embers. They could not see that a breeze was stirring from the east, or that as the shroud of the dew attached itself in droplets to every blade of grass and bobbled onto the lacework spread across the roof, it seemed to dissolve the fibres of their handiwork. If anyone had been watching, they would have seen a strange exchange take place as one shroud met another, and the lower one seemed to take the nature of the upper one and to rise through it into the sky, expanding, spreading out, blocking the moon and stars again from sight, and hanging there throughout the night between the little house and the sea. The family woke in the morning, and looked at one another as if they'd dreamt the last week not daring to ask of one another if they had had the same dream, perhaps. "'What now?' said Jack, eventually. "'I don't know,' said William. Mabel hurried from the room to see if her husband was miraculously lying in their bed, but he wasn't, and she sat down on it, feeling once again the worm of something not being quite right.' There was no knock on the door as they went mechanically about fixing some porridge and chewing their way through it. William said, I don't know, several times at various intervals. But hope was cooling in them like the last night's embers. William announced that he was going to chop some more wood, 
and left the door open on his way out. It was overcast, and the mottled grey underbelly of the clouds gave no comfort, spreading as far as the eye could see. Jack grumpily said that he still had twelve monkey's fists to make and that he intended to walk to town to see if he could buy some more rope. He squeezed his mother's hand but refused to meet her eyes as he said goodbye to her at the gate. William was working rhythmically at the logs at the back of the house. Frock, frock, frock went his axe. He had the idea of chopping wood all day because he didn't want to look at his mother's face either. It had all been his fault. Frock, frock, frock. He paused and stretched his back and looked towards the mountains. The two closest ones wore the forest like a shawl, and he'd be returning there soon to tell his bosses that deeper into the wood the timber was superior and there would be no trouble to cut a track into the very heart of it for the carts to bring the logs out, and the old lady who'd not kept her part of the bargain could have her heart broken too. But as he squinted at the horizon, he fancied that he saw a single tress of grey smoke hanging in the air from some small fire burning in the forest. Mabel was still standing at the gate, watching the spot where her eldest son had gone out of sight down the path. She heard her youngest stop chopping, then high above her head she heard the sparrowhawk weaning. Looking up, she saw the tiny black shape break from the cloud and begin to descend lazily in circles. Not now, she said to herself, believing that the coincidence of her two sons returning and the way that everything had just seemed to fit together was the cruelest trick that fate had ever played, and now the sparrowhawk's cry had come to pierce her through with loneliness. It had been pure folly, riding upon the back of all their agony. Of course it's not possible to bring someone back from the dead. How desperate had they been, but she couldn't take her eyes off the hawk. It balanced itself in mid-air above the path in front of her, and then, folding its wings, suddenly dropped like an arrow. The starlings detached themselves from the bushes in alarm, scattershot and tumbling over each other north and south like flotsam on the waves. But there was a movement somewhere down the path. Had the hawk taken a rabbit there? No, it was a man, walking quickly, leaning forward slightly and pulling his legs awkwardly and alternately as if his boots were too heavy for him to lift properly. It was her man, and she ran to meet his living, salty embrace. <laughs>